I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge and thank our members of our Board of Trustees, especially those who've joined us here tonight, including Mark Enriquez, Thomas Gill, and John Reed. Tonight's program is the first event in a four-part series called The Art of War. The series investigates artists' responses to art and violent, I'm sorry, to war and violence from the American Revolution to today. The series was inspired by the Athenaeum's important and rich collections of documentary and graphic materials related to the Civil War, World War I, and now the newly acquired Richard W. Cheek World War II Graphic Arts Collection, which contains 2,000 posters and war maps, as well as ephemera and realia. I invite you to join us for the next event in the series, which is Sally Pemberton's lecture on modern artists' involvement in World War II um, at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, February 8th. Tonight's speakers are Michael Fay and Tara Lee Tappert. Michael Fay earned an MFA in illustration from the University of Hartford and a bachelor's degree in art education from Pennsylvania State University. He is an adjunct professor in Virginia Commonwealth University's painting and printmaking department, where he designed a course on reportage art. Mr. Fay was an active duty Marine for nearly 20 years, attaining the rank of sergeant in 1978. He joined the Marine Corps Reserve in 2000 and served as a combat artist with the Field History Detachment, supporting the historical division of the Marine Corps through two tours in Afghanistan and two in Iraq. He's had three major solo exhibitions, has participated in numerous group shows, and his work resides in the permanent collections of the National Museum of the Marine Corps and the James Michener Art Museum, among others. Tara Lee Tappert holds a doctorate in American Civilization from George Washington University and a master's degree in Library and Archives Administration from Wayne State University. Since 2010, Ms. Tappert has been organizing and developing veteran-focused exhibitions and researching the 20th and 21st century history of art making as a form of rehabilitation for the war wounded. The Arts and the Military, a grassroots initiative she founded in 2011, offers educational programs, art making workshops, and exhibitions to a wide range of cultural, educational, medical, and military institutions. This evening, Mr. Fay and Ms. Tappert will consider the role and influence of wartime experiences on culture and the arts. Please join me in welcoming Michael Fay and Tara Lee Tappert. Well, good evening, everybody. And uh, I want to thank the Athenaeum for inviting us and giving this uh, opportunity. Tara and I have been um, worked on a whole bunch of projects together, and uh, we've been having private conversation about this this topic since about 2010. Um, <clears throat> we couldn't be two more different people, so part of uh, the gist of our overview of our talk tonight has to do with uh, a little Jungian thing called the tension of opposites. And uh, certainly, uh, anybody would expect that Tara and I are sort of uh, very much opposites. Um, so we have this kind of interior view of the subject, but one of the reasons I want to thank you is, is you're the exterior view. So as we go through our material tonight, um, this is sort of new for us. So um, anything that's not clear during the Q&A, please let us know. 
Um, and hopefully also, if you have views or questions that just have not occurred to us, that is of, of utmost value um, to us. So tonight, the topic is beyond stereotype, war, warriors, and the creative arts. And it's always good, um, as I, I'm adjunct, uh, not only at the VCU in Richmond, but also at Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania. So uh, my students always, you know, we all got, had to be reading off the same sheet of music. So stereotype, what is it? Well, it's a noun, a widely held but fixed and oversimplified image or idea of a particular type of person or thing. And the synonyms are standard, conventional image, received idea, cliche, hackneyed idea, formula, formulaic, etc. Um, also war, which is, you know, especially in view of current political situations, the last 15 years or so, um, that's a word that's been a part of everybody's life, whether you've been at home or had family members overseas or uh, been somebody like myself who's um, uh, been there and done that. Uh, so I didn't make these definitions up. War can be a practical means, sometimes the only means available for the achievement of rational policy aims, i.e. the aims of one party in a political dispute. Hence, to describe war as an instrument of policy is entirely correct. It is an act of force to compel our opponent to do our will. Having been in the military and been uh, schooled on the uh, law of warfare and the Geneva Convention, <coughs> there we're taught that war is simply the resolution of political questions through the force of arms. And also, the warrior, or uh, hopefully uh, what I intend is a legal combatant as opposed to a terrorist or somebody who's not in uniform, doesn't carry a Geneva Convention ID card. Um, a warrior or a lawful companion is a person engaged or experienced in warfare, broadly a person engaged in some struggle or conflict, a member of, a regular, of a, the regular forces of a state party engaged in hostilities against the United States, a member of a militia, volunteer corps, or organized resistance movement belonging to a state party engaged in such hostilities, which, under, uh, which are under responsible command, where a fixed distinctive sign recognizable at a distance, carry their arms openly and abide by the law of war, or a member of a regular armed forces who professes allegiance to a government engaged in such hostility but not recognized by the United States. So it's important that somebody who was trained to go to war is in a uniform and is being led. Um, so we're talking about stereotype and tonight essentially I am exhibit A. And here's some pictures of me um, as, the, as a warrior, as a United States Marine. Um, I'm also wearing my uh, Marine Corps kilt tonight um, based on a Harvard study that shows that you will remember it better from a man in a kilt than a man not in a kilt. <laughs> and it uh, shows me, in a, that right there is, uh, the first picture is me in a place called Ubedi during a Operation Steel Curtain. There's also me in an ad hoc studio in the field doing a watercolor and finally a picture of me in boot camp. When most of my friends were going on to grad school, I was down at Paris Island uh, wondering what the heck I had done with my life. But this is also me. Uh, I'm in a tie-dye t-shirt, a tutu, a pith helmet, tights, and my wife's father's uh, barn boots. Uh, I was in a dunker, and the Rotarians told me that I had made them more money in that hour than they've ever gotten on a July 4th. Um, I'll also tell you, you would not know this, on my dog tag it says Unitarian. I also joked to Tara that she's a Quaker, and Unitarians are Quakers with guns. Um, I'm, also a f I'm also a son, and there's a picture of me and my mother. She just turned 88 on Saturday. 
And then I'm also a father and a husband and a grandfather. I'm an adoptive father as well. My, my daughter is Korean. Um, now, as far as being on the receiving end of stereotype, um, and a lot of what I'm sharing with you is because um, I had my first show at the Farnsworth Museum and Wyeth Center up in Rockland, Maine. And I will tell you, when I got the letter from a guy named Chris Crossman, who uh, set up the Crystal uh, Bridges uh, Museum out in, uh, for the, uh, uh, the Walmart Walton family, um, yeah, I, I, I cried. I mean, I got the letter and I was like, oh my gosh. Um, so I had my first show. And uh, when I showed up for the Saturday opening, you know, with the wine and the cheese, um, there were protesters, and, uh, which I had not expected. And I came walking across the street, and they had, of course, the flyers were all in pink. And I was in my dress green uniform, not the full dress blues. And they handed me a flyer, and I was reading it. And it said that my art inherently promoted and glorified war. And it's inside, somehow they found out I'd done recruiting duty as a Marine, uh, and that I was also there to recruit. Um, and I was so honored, because I looked at him, I said, oh my gosh, you're my protesters. <laughs> and then I showed him my dog tag with Unitarian just to get the full effect of seeing their eyes turn wide, because I figured most of them had gone to the UU, either belonged or, like a lot of good UUs, refused to sign a book, because they're just against that. And, uh, and, and they were. And the conversation when they came to the show um, did become about the art. And the questions they asked were valid, like what does war have to do with art? Why would the Marines have artists? You know, and what do you hope the art to do? But this is what the, uh, was reported in the Banger newspaper. Um, the fact that he would come not dressed as an artist, but as a Marine is an affront, said Natasha Myers of Whitfield. I'm for the real expression that's not paid for. This guy is paid for. He's been a Marine all his life. And this is a military point of view. The day-to-day -day part of war, which we can't imagine, is what we need to see. We need to see images that tell us the truth. Um, and Natasha and I since became friends, but she was the head of the union, the main union of visual artists. Um, and one of the reasons I like Tara is she is somebody who took the time to find out, to get past all that. Now, I'm going to show you some of my artwork. I work in every medium except printmaking. So you won't see any etchings or prints. Um, so these are paintings that I've done. They're all from first-hand experience. One of the other things that uh, we may or may not get to touch on is the whole idea of, of what's uh, called the aesthetics of direct experience. So these are uh, three paintings that I've done. Um, give you an idea what my art looks like. Um, these are a series of watercolors. Um, I'm, I, they tell me I'm good at portraits and sort of getting the psychological stuff. So hopefully that is true. Um, the one that's particularly important to me, I mean, they're all important, is the one, the one down in the, uh, where you're looking, right-hand corner. It's called Lance, Cor uh, Lance uh, Corporal Fuller Mourns. And that was sort of a composite. It took me a long time with all my photo reference because I was in combat. And uh, my job in, when this situation was happening was, was not to be sketching. And, uh, I was with a lieutenant when he died, and that's him under the sheet with his bloody hand. And I took a series of photographs and, and, and combined them. Uh, these are some drawings. Um, the two in the center are, are field sketches. The uh, two on the outside are, are pieces done from photographs later on. I will tell you uh, the piece to your left um, 
is, is probably my, my favorite piece. It showed up on the cover of uh, the National Endowment for the Arts magazine in August of 2012 in an a, 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 um, issue called uh, The Soul of America. And the backstory of that, that is Lance Corporal Nicholas Chacon after patrol in early 2002 when the war was just started. And a year later, uh, he was uh, committed suicide in his parents' garage and uh, before people were talking about suicide and PTSD and all those things. And I will tell you to the credit of the Marine Corps, that is the captioning material. The family wanted it to be known, so if you see any show where this is exhibited, the Marine Corps asks that that is, that is known to honor the family's wishes. And then I also do uh, bronze sculptures. And uh, another thing I'm involved in after I retired from the Marine Corps, I'd done it a little bit while I was in the service, and this is something that Tara and I have also where our paths have crossed. Because um, I'm sort of coming from the fine arts side, and she's coming from the sort of crafts, rehabilitative side. And where it sort of came across was I started something called the Joe Bonham Project. And I'll tell you what the, mean, where the name comes from in a moment here, but uh, myself and then other members of uh, the site illustrators, uh, most of whom at the time when we first started had sons that were in the military. We started going into the shock trauma wards at uh, the uh, VA hospital in Richmond, McGuire, where they were treating uh, soldiers and Marines, and then also uh, in, at Walter Reed. And they allowed us to sketch, and we started doing pretty profoundly wounded um, Marines and soldiers. And Joe Bonham was the main character in uh, Dalton Trumbo's 1938, uh, Johnny Got His Gun. And uh, as, as an old hippie myself, and having you know, read all the obligatory, you know, Rachel Carson and steal this book, uh, and, and uh, all that stuff, I had read Johnny Got His Gun. And so I uh, actually contacted Dalton uh, Trumbo's uh, daughter, and she gave us permission to use it. And uh, so we decided that the, this generation of uh, Joe Bonhams was not going to be put away where they couldn't be seen. So we've had a number of exhibitions. And we've also gone up, to, and uh, with Tara will tell you about the Combat Paper Project, where the artists have gone to Bethesda, they've made paper, and then we've sat there and done sketches of wounded warriors and maybe their children that are there with them and then gave them the drawings. So it's where, and we found it, we didn't know it was going to be, as, uh, I hate to use the word therapeutic, but that it would have a good impact on, on, on the people we were drawing. Uh, we hadn't expected that. So it became very interactive. Um, so these are some of the ones that I've done. Uh, the second one from the left is uh, two months into his treatment uh, is uh, Corporal Kyle Carpenter, who received the Medal of Honor in June of 2014. For, uh, he threw himself on a hand grenade to save his friends and survived. Some of the things that have influenced me, first and foremost, is good old Walt Whitman. I spent about 20 years living in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and during the Civil War after the Battle of Fredericksburg, uh, Walt Whitman, they heard that his brother George might be dead or wounded. Uh, he showed up on a list, a casual list, and he ran down to Fredericksburg because the rest of the Whitman family was apparently in a, in a full free fall meltdown over the situation, and then he stayed with the armies um, in Fredericksburg. So it was kind of nice to think that he was walking the streets of Fredericksburg, and certainly uh, in his uh, book, you know, Leaves of Grass, uh, Drum Paps are amazing poems, uh, in particular the one where he's uh, looking at the, the, the dead who have covered up, which influenced me the piece with, uh, um, with the lieutenant that, was, that had just passed away that I was with when he was covered up. And in particular with Walt Whitman, um, 
in talking to people about what does war and art have to do with, this is a poem almost at the very beginning of Leaves of Grass. As I pondered in silence, and I'll read it. As I pondered in silence, returning upon my poems, considering, lingering long, a phantom arose before me with distrustful aspect. A terrible in beauty, age, and power, the genius of poets and of old lands, as to me directing like flame its eyes, with fingers pointing to many immortal songs and menacing voice. What singest thou, it said? Knowest thou not there is but one theme forever enduring bards, and that is the theme of war, the fortunes of battle, and the making of perfect soldiers. So at the heart of American art and poetry is war. Certainly Winslow Homer, a lot of what is considered American art sort of steeped in realism, what I call dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, um, really goes back to Winslow Homer, the sort of somewhat knowledgeable but largely self-educated artist working from direct experience. But certainly culture, you know, I'm going to quick go by here. You know, there's those of us that, you know, took English 101 in college, you know, start out with Gilgamesh, and we moved to Beowulf, and then, of course, the Iliad, and Homer, and, and, and narrative, and stories of, you know, Telemachus, and Mentor, and Hector, and Paris, and Achilles. You know, all these archetypes of, of, of the human psychology, and certainly Anthenaeum, named after Athena. And the artwork shows up on vases, etc. Um, also, we have the Dying Gaul, which to me is one of the most important pieces, because as an artist who's sort of been there, done that, uh, that came from direct experience. You know, that's a Celt. His hair, the torque around his neck, trying to lift himself up, the wound, um, that came from direct experience. And then certain Trajan's column, um, which is, has deeply influenced Western art. Myself, um, real quick, and we have other slides if we, and when we get into discussion, but I tell you, generally speaking, my art influences had to do with war. I was, you know, my dad, uncles, all the neighbor guys were all in World War II. My dad was from Somerville, Webster Avenue, right by the train track. They wanted him to be a Jesuit priest. He said, Mike, there's a red-headed girl down the block, and there's no way I was going to be a priest. Joined the Civilian Conservation Corps and got recruited in the Marine Corps out of a CCC camp out in Montana. And uh, they made him a lieutenant pretty quick because not a lot of privates in the Marine Corps can speak French, Latin, and quote St. Thomas Aquinas. But I grew up with that story those narratives, just like Homer must have started telling them around fires, or he heard and finally wrote them down. So Howard Pyle, I used to try to copy the Bunker Hill, you know, the rows of soldiers, the backpacks overlapping. But then there were also, you know, there was Life magazines and there were, of, of Tom Lee's The Price. So I was also very aware that there was kind of the idealized version, you know, where it's kind of guys fall down in the grass, but, you know, are they really hurt? I don't know. To opposed to Tom Lee's piece of, of, that he actually witnessed a Marine at the beach on Peleliu got shredded with a, from an explosion from a, a mortar. And so those are sort of the two ends for me as I approached doing art. Um, I recognized art history, but also direct experience, what you see 
And, and my orders from the Marine Corps were real simple. Go to war and do art. Now, a couple of things we talked about, and this, this, I had a great aesthetics class in, at Penn State years ago. So I learned about something from Carl Jung, the tension of opposites. I'm going to read this real quick. The repressed content must be made conscious so as to produce a tension of opposites, without which no forward movement is possible. The conscious mind is on top, the shadow underneath, and just as high always longs for low, hot for cold, so all consciousness, perhaps without being aware of it, seeks its unconscious opposite, lacking which, lacking which it is doomed to stagnation, congestion, and ossification. Life is born only out of the spark of opposites. So as an artist, you've got to stay in that tension. It's real easy to, you know, I could have just decided, I just want to do like Peter Max-like posters, um, but to stay in the tension of opposites. The other thing is uh, a quote from uh, Henry Louise Bergeron. Um, between nature and ourselves, nay, between ourselves and our own consciousness, a veil is interposed, a veil which is dense and opaque to the, for the common herd, thin, almost transparent for the artist and the poet. What fairy wove that veil? This is always the interesting part. Was it done in malice or friendliness? And so as artists and going out into that world, and, uh, and I, sometimes I want to call art a love affair with reality. I consider myself a naturalist. Um, you got to expose yourself to some stuff you may not want. Interesting thing. Um, where these two uh, sort of dualities have been combined. The British have a regiment, uh, it's, now the special op it's now the Special Air Service uh, Reserve. It's called the Artist Rifles, founded by a virtual who's who of pre-Raphaelite painters, Millet, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, Hunt, Leighton, William Morris in 1860. And their symbol, which they still have today, is Mars, and Minerva, the god of war and the god of art. And then in art history at Penn State, I learned um, when you talk about modern art, where did that sensibility begin? And I had a wonderful professor named uh, Dr. Lord, and he taught me two paintings, Surrender at Breda, Breda by Diego Velasquez, and he said it has to do with those lances. The artist decided, I'm going to paint them just the way they are. Crisscrossing, not perfect. Did the design for its own sake? You know, the king that's uh, commissioning this, I'm going to kind of fool him. I'm going to, he's going to be there, you know, receiving the baton, acting real gracious. But the artist said, they're going to know I was there because I saw those lances and I didn't make them perfect. And then, of course, the very austere uh, oath of the Horatii by uh, Jacques Louis David. Um, during that period, uh, slightly before and then into the, um, everyone knows the, uh, the death of, uh, was it Marat in his tub? Um, but uh, uh, Jacques uh, David. So that's a little bit my background, my art, things that have influenced us, things that uh, kind, of the, kind of frame today's talk about tension of opposites and, and, and what it means to be an artist and to go to war. And now my friend Tara.
So this will, this will be a very different uh, presentation, um, more typical art history kind of presentation. And uh, I, I want to start just by thanking um, everyone here at the Boston Athenaeum, and particularly the education people, uh, Victoria O'Malley and Deborah Vernon, for making this uh, possible for us to come here and, and do this presentation. And so I came at the, this topic of beyond stereotype war warriors in the creative arts in a, in a very different, um, from a very different perspective. And I have been doing uh, research on the history of how the arts um, have been used by the military back to the First World War for rehabilitation, which is in many senses the story of the beginning years of occupational therapy. So that's what a lot of this um, presentation will be. So, and just to start, uh, I, I also did my dissertation on uh, the artist Cecilia Bow, who had her summer home and studio in Gloucester. And uh, when I started doing this work, I had absolutely no idea why somebody who had been working on late 19th, early 20th century women artists, all the issues around portraiture, grand manor painting, um, would get moved in another direction to have an interest in uh, veterans' art and, re and art for rehabilitation. So I have started finding and, and happily finding all these intersects with Cecilia Bow. So the painting on your, what is that, your left, um, is called Victory Bearing Away the Infant Future. And it was uh, done as a, a promotional piece for the Gloucester um, American Legion in 1921. Um, and I thought, what a nice way to move in to this idea of what rehabilitation was after the war for, for veterans. Okay. World War I was the first truly modern war. The use of tanks, aircraft, heavy artillery, and poison gas coupled with intense trench warfare took its physical and psychological toll on those who served. 16 million lives were lost and a further 21 million were injured. While veterans and civilians alike turned to the arts to document the war's devastation, the arts were also used for rehabilitation of those who were wounded and disabled. And again, Boston-connected uh, artists, uh, John Singer Sargent's very, very famous Gast from 1918, and Cecilia Bowe's portrait of Lieutenant Lamardant, and he was a French artist that 
she knew from her many travels back to France. And there's a show um, at the Pennsylvania Academy in Philadelphia right now called World War I in American Art. And there's a very big painting of Lieutenant Lamardant, same mask, masking head covered by Susan Aikens, which I had never seen. So that was exciting for me. Um, After the war, renewal and restoration became the new agenda, and the peacetime message, carry on, provided hope and resolution for the war wounded, while several post-war initiatives were put in motion to help the disabled move on in life Occupational and physical therapy, as well as vocational training, offer interesting social, cultural, political, and economic intersects with health care and creative and artistic expression. Concerned that the economic burden of caring for the ever-growing number of wounded would overwhelm the government and the military, an agenda of reconstruction and self-sufficiency was developed and then promoted and realized in collaboration with the Red Cross and many other social and cultural agencies. Grounded in progressive era arts and, cra and, arts and crafts movement social outreach ideals, occupational therapy emerged as a healthcare profession in the first decades of the 20th century and blossomed during the First World War. Core beliefs were the certainty that impaired persons could function in their communities despite disabilities and that engaging a patient's mind and body quickened convalescence. Both pieces of the, of the way occupational therapy developed became extremely important in the care of uh, the wounded and disabled veterans during the war. Handicrafts were regarded as useful and therapeutic occupations that could later become a vocation or an avocation. Two of the best known pre-war therapeutic handicraft programs were Marblehead Pottery at the Devereux Sanatorium in Marblehead, Massachusetts, and Arequipa Pottery at Arequipa Sanatorium in rural Marin County, California, not far from San Francisco. Occupational therapy blossomed as a profession during the First World War. Programs were established throughout the country to train reconstruction aides to meet the demand for occupational and physical therapists to aid in the bodily and mental rehabilitation of disabled soldiers. Design and craft courses were program requirements, and the women who completed training became invaluable staff members of military and private hospitals abroad and at home. Embracing an arts and crafts movement belief in holistic well-being, pioneering reconstruction aids were either occupational therapists providing therapeutic economic or diversion activities for patients, or physical therapists using 
specially designed exercises and equipment to help patients reduce pain and improve physical mobility. Both types were employed at the war front. And the, the photograph at the uh, bottom of, I love this photograph. I found this at the World War I Museum. It's from Fort Gordon during the First World War. And it's a physical therapist boxing with her patient. And his name is Johnny Battles. The first reconstruction aides to provide service in France were assigned to base hospital number 117, where they worked with physically sound men suffering from war neuroses. They quickly helped the men return to duty, and their success resulted in a call for a thousand of these aides as soon as you can get them ready. Lena Hitchcock, seen here in the top photos, responded to the call and worked at base hospital number nine, where she provided occupational therapy instruction. The cross-stitch T-set depicting French, British, and American soldiers made by convalescing servicemen was given to American actress and singer Marion Abbott by the men when she entertained them in a hospital in France and I helped the owner of this set place this uh, in the collections at the World War I Museum. The work of occupational therapy was originally divided into two curative levels. The first was bedside occupations, such as knitting and basket weaving, and was primarily regarded as a recreational activity. The second was a more purposeful form of training intended to prepare a disabled veteran for employment after his discharge from the hospital. The line between occupational therapy and vocational training was frequently blurred during and after the First World War. Two of the stateside military hospitals that developed significant occupational therapy programs were Walter Reed General Hospital in Washington, D.C., and Fort McHenry U.S. Army Hospital No. 2 in Baltimore, Maryland. Walter Reed created a program that allowed the wounded and disabled to tackle the therapeutic craft most suitable to their current physical condition, and as their health improved and strength returned, they progressed to more difficult crafts that could potentially become a, a vocation. Knitting, weaving, sewing, and jewelry making were a part of the Walter Reed program. Fort McHenry focused on vocational training and employment opportunities for disabled veterans. The men were taught new job skills, such as metalwork, basketry, commercial art, carpentry, upholstery, and auto repair that could be used when dismissed from the hospital. The spirit of the vocational school was best depicted in an illustration of a recovering soldier on the anniversary cover of the Trouble Buster, Fort McHenry's own magazine printed on its own presses by its patients. During and after the First World War, the Red Cross was aligned with the 
national and military policy regarding the care of crippled and disabled veterans, economic stability equaled wellness. The Red Cross opened the headquarters of the Institute for Crippled and Disabled Men in 1917 in New York City, considered the first specialized trade school in the country to work with adults with disabilities. The purpose of the Institute was to rehabilitate disabled men and to provide them with training to become economically self-sufficient. Their mission was worldwide. Under the leadership of Douglas Crawford McMurtry, the Red Cross Institute conducted disability studies and published numerous documents about worldwide vocational training initiatives, such as the Port Valais Re-Education School in Belgium, where over 40 trades were taught in the shops of the Department of Technical Training, many of which were arts-focused. A couple years ago, I had a fellowship in the Kluge Center at the Library of Congress, and this was one of my great finds, was this photo album and then the report that matched the photo album. So I was able to learn about that in that facility and then see the pictures of what they were actually doing there. After the war, occupational therapy and vocational training programs proliferated throughout the United States and the world. Besides military hospital programs, there were also classes on military bases, at social service and arts organizations, and in artist studios, many supported by the government. In 1920, at the Pelham Bay Naval Training Camp, Wounded soldiers who were members of the Associated Arts Studio took art and cartooning lessons. From 1921 to 1924, the Society of Illustrators, of which Mike is today continuing to work, um, ran the School for Disabled Soldiers in New York City, offering classes in illustration to approximately 75 to 100 students. And they were very proud of this school because they were able to place um, in good paying positions for magazines at least 35% of their students. Um, also in New York City, Greenwich House, a social service organization, provided occupational therapy for blind veterans who designed miniature clay versions of Miss Liberty that were then glazed and fired by artisans in the Greenwich House pottery. In 1918, in Chicago, Kalo Shops founder Clara Barack Wells opened her studio and taught a useful arts class for the wounded. She believed metalsmithing and commercial had commercial value, and the copper and silver box seen here, made by a wounded soldier in another studio occupational therapy class was work well, Wells envisioned as useful and potentially economically sustaining. Two veterans, one was wounded and the other disabled, 
built careers in metalsmithing following training in occupational therapy programs. William Waldo Dodge, Jr. returned from the war in 1919 and spent four years in military hospitals and tuberculosis sanatoriums. His time as a convalescent played a role in the development of his career as a silversmith. While recuperating at the Gaylord Farm Sanatorium in Wallingford, Connecticut, he learned basic silversmithing from Margaret Wheeler Robinson, who he married in 1921. Dodge and his wife then established Gaylord Silvercraft, which became a part of the vocational training and occupational therapy of the sanatorium. While Dodge later moved on to a post-war career as an architect in North Carolina, Ralph Grimm remained firmly identified with the occupational therapy training program at Walter Reed General Hospital. Grimm lost both legs during the Meuse-Argonne offensive and was unable to return to his previous employment as a miner in Colorado. Under the tutelage of hospital reconstruction aide Alberta Montgomery, Grimm took up silversmithing and jewelry making, opening a studio across the street from the hospital in 1920. He completed commissions for such institutions as the National Cathedral and met with such dignitaries as Mrs. Calvin Coolidge. The mark for Grimm's work is the insignia of his regiment, the 89th Division of the 355th Infantry. While occupational therapy programs for wounded veterans lasted through the mid-1920s, the continuation of such endeavors was under scrutiny just two years after the war. The case of Fox Hills Base Hospital on Staten Island suggests how quickly the American public and its government moved on from the horrors of the Great War and care of the wounded. Constructed in just four months in 1918, while running at capacity, the hospital staff included 10 reconstruction aides, Fayette Barnum among them. In 1920, the head of the therapy branch boasted that 4,500 men had passed through occupational therapy, partake, partaking in a wide range of courses that included stenography, commercial art, book and magazine illustration, handicraft work in textiles, reed, and caning, as well as practical automotive work. Sale of items made by the wounded brought in proceeds of over $2,000, $2,000 1920 money. The reconstruction aides, aides saw the benefit of such training courses for the disabled and considered the possibility of establishing the ex-servicemen's crafts club in New York City for those who were well enough to leave the hospital but were still dealing with medical issues. Fayette Barnum noted that we do not like the idea like to think of giving up our work completely after we have seen what can be done for American soldiers. Her concern for the program and for the wounded was well-founded. There was talk of closing the hospital in 1920, 
and by 1922, the conditions were so deplorable that it was declared a fire trap by the director of the U.S. Veterans Bureau. The hospital was closed shortly thereafter. So I close this um, with just the briefest reference to the amazing arts and military work for wounded service members and veterans happening today. Walter Reed continues to work at the forefront of care and the art therapy mask making program led by Melissa Walker at the National Intrepid Center of Excellence is bringing solace while the artist in residence program offered by ArtStream and Smith Center for Healing and the Arts provide art making activities that hearken to the bedside and workshop crafts of the World War I occupational therapists. Beyond the government and military structures are grassroots arts initiatives like Mike's Joe Bonham Project, where artists visited Walter Reed and sketched the wounded of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, Combat Paper Project and Combat Paper New Jersey work with the recreational program at Walter Reed, creating handmade paper from shredded and pulped military uniforms. The words of World War I poet Wilfred Owen, the angel and fallen soldier from a World War I Irish memorial, an Iraq war and an Iraq war helicopter bridge 100 years of veterans' experiences. Thank you.